You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. got a Bible, go ahead and turn that to Matthew chapter 26. If we haven't met, my name's Zach, and if you feel like it's weird that you don't know one of our pastors, that I'm pretty new, been here a couple months. I was away for a little while, then God and Lyle called me back here to be back here at Jerrytown, and it's been, a, I promise, it's been a real joy, it's been a little sweetness for me and Caitlin to be back and be with his family again. Um, it's been a real encouragement to our own soul. I just want to say greetings from our friends and family in St. Louis from Storyline Church. A crew from us, uh, this body, went there last weekend, I think eight to nine families, and we got to celebrate their first ever launch as a, as a church. I just want to give God a praise for that. Me, me, Chris Wilson, down here, we're ushering, and we were like, okay, we got to find a place to sit people because we're running out of seats. Their first other gathering, they were running out of capacity, um, and it, it was a real blessing to be able to serve them, be there, present with them, and just honestly, in my head, I was just thinking, um, those of you who are there, I, in my head, I was thinking, like, you're watching your, your kid take their first steps. And as, you, as a church, it's our, one of our first kids. It's our kid, and they're taking their first steps this Sunday, last Sunday, and they're there, it's really something beautiful happening there. So if you're here and you're interested in maybe going on a trip out there or maybe a group of you trying to get out there and serving them or be present on Sunday, we, we'd love to facilitate that. So you can email me or you can contact Chris right here down the front. We'll facilitate that and help you get out there and be blessed by them, but also bless them there in St. Louis, a storyline church, a, a group of people, a family, a church that's expanding the kingdom in another city across States. So just thank you. That's part of your generosity goes toward that. Um, so Matthew chapter 26, where we'll be, we're picking up in the story and we're headed down the final days of Jesus' life. We're going to start reading in verse 47. You can stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen, but I encourage you to have a Bible because we'll be walking through this text quite a bit today. Verse 47 is where we start reading. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with the swords and clubs was with him, the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then Jesus came up to, then they came up to Jesus and they arrested him. And at that moment, one of those in which Jesus reached out his hand and drew the sword, he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all this, if you take up a sword, and perish, you will perish by the sword. And do you think that I cannot call my father? He'll provide me here and now more than 12 legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? At the time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me then. But all this has happened so the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him 
and ran away. Those who arrested Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him there at the distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and all the whole Sanhedrin are looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two men came forward and stated, this man, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you have an answer for what these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you'll see the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robe and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him. And said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who was that that hit you? This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. And given to you in love. You guys can be seated. One of the joys of pastoral ministry over the several, last several years is getting to see when young couples, especially teenagers, begin to flirt and date. It's beautifully awkward. And it's just, it's just so beautiful to see these young couples, just their eyes, and their, uh, their, their eyes glow up and they start interacting. You see them not knowing what to do, but they, they really want to have this conversation. And part of pastoral ministry wasn't, I was watching them, but I was having conversation with their parents because they were way more anxious than the kids were. And in these conversations, you see this anxiety come up. And one of the main reasons for the anxiety is this concern. Yes, they want their kid to know Jesus. They want their kid's boyfriend or girlfriend to know Jesus. But here's their ultimate concern. Here's what they really long, long for and desire. They want to know their baby is going to be taken care of and loved forever. Teenager, if you're in the room and you experience this awkward execution of this anxiety in your relationships. It's give your parents grace. Honestly, do not know what they're doing. They love you, and here's what they want. Their anxiety, their awkwardness, their squashing of your joy sometimes is mainly because they really want you to be taken care of, and they really want somebody to love you forever. So especially dads of little girls, their deepest longing is one day, to walk that little girl down the aisle and hand her off to a man and with confidence hand hand her off to a man that will take care of her and to love her forever. If we're honest, that's one of our deepest longings. We want to know we have somebody in our life that will love us forever, that will take care of us forever. That's how God wired us. Here's the beauty I want to invite you into this text this morning. You can live with confidence that God will take care of you. He'll love you forever. You can live with confidence 
that God will take care of you and he will love you forever. What I want to do this morning is show those two truths and then land on a few ways to cultivate this in your life. Two truths and land on a few ways to practice, to get this in your bones. So the first truth, that you can live with confidence that God will take care of you. You can live with confidence and God will take care of you. So what's happening in Matthew, we're leaving the garden scene and Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, is coming to betray him. He kisses Jesus on the cheek and he, he gives Jesus over to this mob who's just given him gold and Jesus is being arrested. And I love verse 51 when it says, someone took out their sword and cut off the high priest servants here. We all know who the someone is. It's Peter, but Matthew doesn't want to heap shame on Peter like the other gospel writers have. But Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the servant's ear. And look how Jesus responds in verse 52. And Jesus told them, put, it, put the sword back in its place because whoever takes up a sword will perish by the sword. Or do you, know, do you not think that I cannot call my father? He'll provide me here and now with more than two legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled to say that it must happen this way? So he looks at Peter, and he's not making this anti-self-defense pacifist argument. He's saying, if I wanted to defend myself, I could, and I don't need your sword. If I wanted to change this scene, I could do it. This is to fulfill the scriptures. Basically, this is planned. Then he turns to the crowds. Look at verse 55. That time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs so that I, if, if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me then, but all this happened in the, to fulfill, it happened so the writings, the prophets will be fulfilled. Imagine the tension of this moment. You got a mob full of pitchforks and swords and clubs. They're, they're coming to arrest Jesus. And they think they're on the right side of history. They think they're on God's side. They're coming to capture this guy who's ruining everything. He looks at them. He says, You come to capture me. Why haven't you done it yet? I haven't changed, I've been teaching the Bible. I've been talking about things that you don't agree with this whole time. Why do you do it now? Answer, because I'm letting you. Could you imagine the anger in this mob? They think they're going to do something that he's going to hate, and he's telling them, you're only getting to do this because I'm letting you. They think this whole time they're pushing up against Jesus' agenda. They think that they're thwarting his plan. They think they're ruining his agenda. And what they don't know, they weren't ruining God's agenda. They weren't ruining Jesus' agenda. They were fulfilling it. And what was Jesus referencing to? Maybe he's referencing to Psalm 41.9 where he says, the psalmist says, the person who breaks bread with me, my friend, is the one who will betray me. Maybe Jesus is thinking about Isaiah 53. Verse 7 through 9, it says this. He was oppressed 
and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who, condemned, who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of the people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had spoken, he had not spoken deceitfully. Or maybe he's thinking about the original plan of all. When God looks at the serpent, when he's cursing the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he says this, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will bruise, strike his heel. Jesus was telling these disciples, he's telling this mob, this is a part of the game plan. This was a part of why I came. What we see here is God's sovereign plan over the life of Jesus. Here's what we know, that God didn't send Jesus to earth crossing his fingers hoping they would kill him. Even in the Acts, when the disciples get in the Acts, they're before the Sanhedrin again, and they say that God planned them killing Jesus. God's orchestrating it all. God planned it all. He planned from Genesis. He planned from Noah. And when he told Abraham he's going to make a great nation, he thought of Jesus. When he looked at David, he thought of Jesus. When he looked at the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness, he thought of Jesus. He didn't just think of Jesus. He was planning for Jesus. He was ordaining things in such a way that would get us to Jesus. Here's what that means for me and you. The same God who planned the days of Jesus, the planned the crucifixion of Jesus, that got us from the beginning of time to the day of Jesus is planning our lives. He's planning your life. He's orchestrating your life. He's orchestrating your story. He's, he's not, in ho- not in heaven like fiddling his thumbs waiting for you to arrive. He's involved in every breath you take, every worry you have, every season of your life. He's there. And he's not just there. He doesn't just see you. He's sovereign over it. The reason Jesus can look at this mob and say, this was to be fulfilled because he knew his father was orchestrating it all. So that means wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, whatever story you have, God is involved in your life and he's orchestrating it so. So that means the parents with wayward children, God's got you. Single person longing deeply for a spouse, God's got you. Teenager, it feels like no one gets you, no one understands you, God's got you. That doesn't mean the pain is less. Jesus' pain was 100% real. 
It just means that God is not absent from it. You can live with confidence that God is going to take care of you because he's sovereign over it all. Secondly, you can live with confidence that God will love you forever. Let's pick up in verse 56. The disciples deserted, deserted him and ran away. Can we just sit there for a second? Jesus is in handcuffs. He's been arrested by this mob with clubs and swords, and he's, he's being dragged to a courtyard to put, be put on trial. And the next thing that Matthew wants to inform us is that he was deserted. Jesus' darkest moment, in his darkest time of his life, he felt the most lonely he's ever felt. His best friends he's done life with, he's poured his life into for three years. They're gone. There's a reason Matthew wants to make clear to us, to point out to us, they deserted him. He could have used any word. They left him. You might think, well, Jesus was God. He can get over it. He's okay. Well, Jesus was God, but he was 100% human, which means he felt 100% of his pain. He's lonely. He's hurt. We often think of the crucifixion and Good Friday is just when, when he's up on the cross, but what we need to understand is the crucifixion isn't just the nails. The nails killed Jesus, but the crucifixion started days earlier. When the loneliness sank in, when the betrayal sank in, one of his disciples betrayed him. The rest of them left him. But the pain didn't stop there. They drug him off to the courtyard. They put him on trial. And these, these Jewish leaders were trying to put him and catch him in this trap. They wanted him to get to admit that he is blasphemed. He bared false witness. And they're asking him all kinds of questions and they can't find a good testimony that lands. They really want to put him to death and they need an excuse to put him to death. And then two people come forward. Look at verse 60. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you have an answer to these men who are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. The witnesses brought up this count when Jesus was walking out of the temple and he said about the temple, I can destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. But he wasn't talking about the temple because he didn't destroy the temple. But he was making a theological claim. He was stating that this temple is obsolete. I'm the temple. Because this temple, the, the role of the temple was to have access to God, to be in the presence of God. And what Jesus is saying is you don't need the temple to be in the presence of God because you got me. If you come to me, you get God. And all the laws, all the rituals, are fulfilled in me. 
Well, you, clearly the, the religious leaders didn't like that answer. Look how they act in verse 64. We actually see Jesus respond to this claim. They want to know, are, are you the Messiah? They tell us, are you the Messiah? And we see, finally see Jesus' answer. Verse 64. You have said it, Jesus told them. But I tell you in the future, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming the clouds of heaven. Jesus finally speaks. He's, he answers in the most Jesus way possible. Are you the Messiah? You've said it. It's like, that's the most Jesus answer ever. But he goes further. I'm not only the Messiah. I'm the son of man that's going to be seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. He's referencing Psalm 110 when Psalmist says, he will put all of his enemies at his footstool. He's referencing Daniel 7 when the son of man is lifted up high and all of his enemies are crushed. And here's what Jesus is saying, and this makes him so angry. Yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm also the son of man, and I'm going to crush you. Because my enemies would be destroyed. Well, they really didn't like that. And look with me at the last scene of our story. And feel the weight of it. The high priest tore his robe and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. And they spat in his face. They beat him. Others slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who is that that hits you? Charge our king with blasphemy. And they began to slap him. They begin to spit in his face. They begin to mock him. Who is that that hit you? He's probably blindfolded. Who is that that hit you? Since you're a God, you should have known who that just hit you. They spat. I don't know about you. I'm a pastor. I get it. But if somebody spits in my face, I'm probably going to need to repent. And this is our king. Just standing there. Taking it, blow by blow, spit by spit. Why would he do this? Why would he sit there? Why would he take it? He could wipe every single one of these people out with a Thanos-type snap in a second. But he absorbs it all. Why? Well, the answer is you. In that moment, and he's, he's absorbing all the pain, all the sorrow, all the loneliness. In his mind, as Hebrews, what the Hebrew writer says, he says this, it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What got him to the cross? His love for us. Knowing that through this, he was going to buy for himself and his father a people of God that would be called a family, that would be called a church, and that looks like this. What got him there? Me and you, blood-bought sinners, brought into the family of God because of the work of Jesus. You might be here and you say, Zach, you don't know my story. Nobody can love me like that. 
It's like you don't know the people of hurt. You don't know how bad of a parent I am. You don't know my addictions. You don't know the pain I've been through. No one could love me like that. You're right. I don't know your story. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've been through. But you know who did? Jesus. In every slap, he knew of every struggle you would have. In every syllable of every mocking word, he knew of every sin you would commit for the rest of your life. Jesus knew every detail of every day that you would have, and upon every slap, he absorbed. How do you know for sure that God will love you forever? Look at what Jesus did for you. He died for you. He was mocked for you. Friend, God's love for you was never determined by your ability to get it together. It was set, it was fixed. So when Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of God, he even meant you. How can you live with confidence that God will love you for the rest of your life? Look at what Jesus did for you. You may be hearing you say, Zach, I'm, I know God loves me. I'm free. I'm guilt-free. I'm, I'm forgiven. But you might doubt that he can still use you because you might feel forgiven, but you still feel like damaged goods. I want to point you back to the disciples, these men that deserted him. On his darkest day, they left him. He didn't just forgive them. He didn't just break bread with them. He rose from the grave, and the first people he asked for were the people who left him at his worst day. The first people. And he said, meet me in Galilee. I got some news for you. And he used these men, these buffoons that ran on him on his worst day, and he used them to change the world. Here's what that means. That we are not hindered by our stories. Do not let your shame hold you back from what God can do through you. If he can use these disciples to change the world, he can use you. He can use you in your home. He can use you in your neighborhood. He can use you in this church. Stop letting the lies of shame hinder you from what you're able to do. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to work through you. You can live with total confidence that God will love you. God will take care of you. He'll love you forever. And maybe you're there conceptually. Maybe you're, maybe you're hearing like, yeah, Zach, sounds awesome. Get, good to go. Maybe you're skeptic. Maybe you're doubtful. I get it, but Zach, I'm just not there. And I just want to say your doubts and your skepticism are welcome here. We're not all arriving at the same point. But whether you're all the way there or you're skeptical, I kind of just encourage you just in a few ways to cultivate this in your life. How do I cultivate a confidence that God will take care of me and love me forever? I'll give you three things. First, trust people. 
trust people. And you're like, how's, how's trusting people and having confidence in God's care for me attached? Well, God has wired us so that we learn God's care for us through people. God has wired us in such a way that we learn God's care for us through his care for his people. That's why God established the church. That when we trust people, when we lean into people, we lean into relationships, we find a deeper sense of God's love for us. So trust people. You may Zach, my story is riddled with, with wounds, worse than broken bones when I trust people. And that's valid. We all carry that, carry that with us, that we have trusted people before, and they've left, left us in the dust like the disciples left Jesus. But the way you experience God's care for you, not that you can't experience God's love for you one-on-one, but one of the primary ways you experience God's love and care for you is through trusting people. And I'm not telling you to trust everyone. I'm not telling you to trust someone with your social security number. Simply, by faith, trust someone. Trust someone with a struggle. Trust someone with some pain in your life. Welcome them in beyond that gated wall you have. And in doing so, you'll find the very thing that caused most of your wounds, people, are the very thing God's ordained in your life to heal you. We know God's love primarily through his people. How's God going to take care of me? People. Yes, he can like miraculously pop a pile of cash on your dining room table one Sunday um, because you prayed for it. He can absolutely do that. But most of the time, how God provides for you financially is through people. How God's provides for you spiritually is through people. And the only way you can get to do that is through trusting someone. Trust people. Secondly, do something scary. Now, some of you may say, Zach, you just asked me to trust somebody, and that's terrifying. You knock out two and one. Just trust somebody, and that's also doing something scary for you. But one of the reasons we do something scary, because most of our lives are lived in such a way that doesn't need God's care. If you're honest, you, many of us live a life that if God was totally absent, it'd still run the same. I want to invite you in to experience God's care for you in a deeper sense, to cultivate that in your life. Do something scary. Do something by faith that you know God's got to make this happen for it to work. And I'm not saying go on a scary mission trip to a, a crazy part of the world. That may be some of us, but for some of us, that's not scary. Sign me up. Let's go. I'll do it. For some of us, it means giving in a way that you know you need God to step in. For some of us, that means talking to that person you've been harboring bitterness toward, but you don't want to step into the conflict. It's terrifying. For some of you, it may mean talking to that couple that's already adopted because God has given you a burden for adoption. You're just terrified of making that leap. Whatever that is for you, 
Do something scary. And in doing so, you'll find a deep nearness of God's presence in your life. For me, I think it's biblically true and experientially true that we find God most near when we find our deepest need for him. Do something scary. And lastly, give yourself grace. One of the reasons we can't see that that God loves us forever is because we don't give ourselves grace. Maybe you're not convinced that God will love you forever. It's because you don't love you. And when you look yourself in the mirror, you don't see anything in you that's lovable. And you wear your shame and your guilt and your sins and your pain all on you. And you think, there's no way God loves me. Can I just encourage you not to project your view of yourself to how God views you, but project God's view of you to how you view yourself. When you see yourself, don't think, I, God sees me as I see me. No, when you look in the mirror, you need to see yourself how God sees you. And how does God see you? Well, if you're in Christ, you're beloved. You're a brother and sister. You're a high priest. You're forgiven. You're a king and you're a priest. You're holy. You're spotless. Your story doesn't end up in your rearview mirror. It's totally erased. Your sins, they're not on your record. Stuff you've went through in your life doesn't determine who you are. God's love for you is fixed. So when I wake up in the morning and I look myself in the mirror, I don't see the stupidity I've brought to that day. I don't see the stupid mistakes, the foolish things I've done in my life. I don't see how short I was with my child. I don't see how rude I was with my wife. I don't see how how I'm going to burden this day with myself. I see a child of God. It's been a welcome to this day by the triune God himself, and he smiles upon me. He sees me for all the flaws that I am. And he welcomes me to that day with joy. Give yourself grace. In your parenting, in your, in your grades, if you're a teenager or a middle school kid trying to make the best grades, but you know you're not going to do it. In your relationships, in your awkward friendships with the people that just drive you crazy with a neighbor that you've made mad, give yourself grace. That doesn't mean you don't need to work on the stuff that you need to work on. It just means God isn't determining his love for you based on what you need to work on. Give yourself the grace God gives you. One of the beautiful things about the, the, the gospel story is that we do have a father who's worried about us being taken care of and loved forever. And that's why he see it, sent a bridegroom for a bride. And when he sent us, the church, his bride, down the aisle, he paired her up with a, a bridegroom 
And he handed his church off to a bridegroom that he was totally confident that would take care of us and love us forever. Until we go home, we have a king, a savior, a bridegroom. It's going to take care of us and love us forever. So you can live your life knowing with full confidence that we're taken care of and we're loved. Let's pray. Just take a moment just to sit with yourself. Be curious. Be curious about your skepticism of God's care and love for you. Ask God to give you the faith to believe that he loves you more than you can imagine. When you sit there, just just contemplate the pain of Jesus. Contemplate the idea of your king being slapped. King being sped on. King being mocked. He did that for you. So Father, we pray. We pray that you grant us the faith to believe that you love us, that you'll take care of us. Father, we pray that you'll allow us to see your beauty when we look in the mirror. We'll see ourselves as you see us. We ask this by faith that we leave here with the confidence that you will take care of us, and that you do love us. Pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. So we gather each week, we take a bread and a cup, and one of the reasons we do this is we need a weekly reminder that God will take care of us, and God does love, the, love us. And one of the reasons we've we've lowered the lights when we'll be doing this throughout the the rest of this Lent season is because we want to sit in the darkness of Jesus' days. This is the worst days of Jesus' life. So as you take this meal, we want to take the bread and we're reminded that his body was broken because he wants to take care of you and he loves you. We take a cup and we drink of it because we're taking a meal of Jesus, reminded his blood was shared, shed for you. It was bled for you because he loves you. He wants to take care of you. So as you go to these tables, go and maybe with your family or with somebody you're sitting near, as your conscience permits, like go as you feel comfortable. But as you take, go back to your seat and take of the meal, sit with Jesus. Sit with your risen king. Sit with the man who died and bled for you. 
and have a meal with Jesus, reminded that all that he's done for you. Stand and take communion as a family. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.